Well, please take a seat. Let me have my welcome. My name is Paul Rees, and it's my uh, privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at Shark Chapel. We're back in the Song of Songs, so please open up your Bibles to what was read to us a moment ago from Song of Songs chapter 4. Last Sunday, we considered the wedding day as the king comes for his bride, and this week we're going to consider the wedding night uh, as uh, the bride invites the king into his garden. Now, I've often had little reasons to motivate people to listen in previous weeks. I don't think I need it this week. I think you're going to listen. Five things. First thing, admiration. The first seven verses begin with admiration. You are all together beautiful, is the summary. But uh, finally, they're together. Uh, just the two of them, after their very public wedding, and she stands there, and she's wearing nothing but a veil and sounds like a necklace with a long, dark hair flowing around her head. And he cannot help but admire and praise her beauty. 4 verse 1, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Those lovely eyes get a mention again. Um, her eyes behind a veil are like doves. Her lovely hair is like a flock of goats streaming down a hillside around her face. Her lovely teeth, it's a full set, uh, straight, white, beautiful teeth, all paired, not one is missing, quite impressive in a time before dentistry and no orthodontics. Beautiful red lips around her lovely mouth. Those sides of her face are blushed and beautiful like halves of a pomegranate in its red outer skin. Her lovely straight neck is decorated with, it sounds like, many necklaces, and her lovely breasts like two young fawns. He just wants to spend the whole night alone with her. He just looks in amazement and wonder. Uh, verse 6, until the day breaks. And the shadows flee. I will go to the mountains of myrrh and to the hill of incense. He's praised seven parts of her body. And in biblical thought, seven is the number of perfection. And as she stands there before him, what he sees is perfection. Verse 7, you are all together beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. God has created us with bodies that are beautiful. There's a reason why sculptors and artists are inspired to represent the naked human body. For in every sort of way, our physical bodies are wonderfully made. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that after each day, God steps back, looks at his work, and pronounces it is good with the exception of day six, when he had made mankind, male and female, and he stands back and he looks and he says, it is very good. In Psalm 139, we are told that God is at work in the creation of every one of us. Verse 13, for you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Our bodies are a gift from God to be used for his glory. And recognizing the power 
and the beauty of our bodies will mean that we understand the need for modesty in the way that we dress. But what we have read here is entirely appropriate. This is the right time and the right place for her to reveal her body in the privacy and security of their wedding night. She stands before him naked and unashamed. Now, husbands, notice with me in their lovemaking, words matter. Expressing his praise and delight in her is all part of her feeling secure in his love and willing to be vulnerable and intimate with him. A relationship that's full of sarcastic and negative words will not help make a warm and loving marriage. Now, all the way through this series, we've been considering how this song of songs speaks about, of course, a loving relationship between a man and a woman. I think that's obvious. But at the same time, it points to something even more transcendent, even more glorious. It is the song of songs. This is about God's love for his people. This is about Christ's love for his church. We've, we've already seen how she describes feeling insecure about her body. Um, you know, she's just like a wildflower, just like all the other wildflowers. She's just ordinary. There's nothing special about her. She's, she's been forced to work outside in the vineyard, and she's, she's got sunburnt, and, and she's not been able to take care of her body in the same way, and she feels insecure. She says to her friends, don't stare at me, don't look at me. That's how she sees herself. But in his, his eyes, she is a knockout. She's a stunner. He sees her through his love, and no one else can compare. She's perfection. There is no flaw in you, he sings. And what the Bible tells us, well, we, we considered it last week in Isaiah 62, is this extraordinary verse, as God rejoices, uh, that God rejoices over his bride like a bridegroom rejoicing over his young bride. Isn't that incredible? This rejoicing we see here is kind of God's rejoicing over his people. This is how the Lord Jesus sees his bride, the church. See, a great exchange happens on a wedding day, doesn't it? All that is hers becomes his, and all that is his becomes hers. So 10 years ago, uh, Kate Middleton, in uh, marrying Prince William, uh, she became a duchess on that day and uh, potentially a future queen with access to castles and grand houses and tiaras and all the rest. And he got to have this lovely woman in his life as his bride. But picture this. The cosmos could not believe its eyes to see the bride coming up the aisle to marry Jesus, the King of glory. They could not believe what they saw. In moral terms, the bride staggering up the aisle was a washed out, uh, stained, wrinkled, scabby prostitute. This is the bride? But here's the amazing grace of the gospel that Jesus chose to set his love on ugly, rebellious sinners. He chose to unite his life with ours 
so that on that wedding day, he took our shame, our moral ugliness, our guilt, our sins, so that his honor, his holiness, his glory, his moral perfection, his sinless perfection could become ours. This is the amazing salvation that that Jesus has achieved for us. He not only saves us, but he he beautifies us. Uh, Listen to this verse. We're going to keep coming back to it probably. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And this is how Christ sees us, his bride. You are all together beautiful my darling, there is no flaw in you. And that is certainly what we will be on that great wedding day yet to come. Secondly, we hear in this song uh, from admiration, we hear an invitation in verses 8 to 15. Come with me. Look at verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amna, from the top of Sinir, the summit Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. And this is his invitation to intimacy. They've lived separately up to now. They, they have been separated from each other uh, by the mountains, and he doesn't want to be separate any longer. We heard from the very start of the song, her desire for this day, where she said, well, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And now the moment has arrived. And he speaks these words of invitation. Come with me, my bride. And he continues to woo her to come closer. He opens up his heart to her. Verse 9, you have stolen my heart. My sister, my bride, you have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Was it love at first sight? Perhaps. More often than not, it can take a bit longer for people to meet and fall for each other. But he wants her to know that he belongs to her. She has captured his heart his affections, his whole being. He's all in. He's delighted to have her as his bride. Look at verse 10. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Now, perhaps I think you could argue that the Song of Songs is the most surprising book in the Bible. I'd be interested to hear what you think might be a more surprising book. 
I think the people in Edinburgh would be very surprised that in the Bible you've got a book that's so enthusiastic and positive about sex. I think people would be surprised at that. If they knew what we were talking about, maybe there'd be more people here today if we had space for them, mind you. But the real surprise is this, that we're invited to consider that the passionate love being expressed here between a man and a woman is there to point us to the passionate love of Jesus for us, his bride. We are wanted. Do you hear it in the song? You hear the Lord Jesus wooing his church. We are wanted. We are desired. Christ's heart is locked in on us. My Christian friends, you are wanted. You are desired. Christ's heart is locked in on you. Luke records the time that Jesus was invited to a meal at the house of a very religious man, Simon. He was a Pharisee, but he didn't show Jesus the usual courtesies that you were supposed to show to a guest. And during the meal, this woman breaks in, gets in somehow. She's a woman who was more than likely uh, a woman, a notorious woman in the community, for she'd lived as a prostitute. She'd got into the house. Uh, they're lying down, at, you know, eating, feet away from the table, lying down, that's the food. And, and she gets behind Jesus, and she is weeping over his feet. <laughs> and she's drying his feet with her hair, and she's kissing his feet. And she's pouring perfume on his feet. Simon was appalled. He was absolutely appalled. Did, didn't Jesus know who this woman was? Did he not know his, her reputation? I mean, he didn't see himself as a sinner. He didn't think he needed to be forgiven much, which explains why he gave Jesus such a cool welcome when he came. But Jesus knew that her actions spoke of his great love. Jesus knew that her actions spoke of her great love for him. For she knew that she had been forgiven much. And she knew that Jesus had transformed her life and she was just welling up with tears of joy and love and adoration. Now, no doubt, no doubt uh, Simon had served some wine at the meal, but her response of love was far more delightful and pleasing to Jesus than the wine. The smell of the fragrance from the perfume poured out as a thanksgiving, far more delightful than the most expensive perfumes or spices out there. Charles Simeon, uh, the Victorian uh, preacher, has actually seven sermons on this part of the Song of Songs. And he makes the point that every act of service, of worship, of praise, of our lives and our words are delightful to King Jesus. This is what he says. Yes, believer, when you're on your sick bed and are suffering with patience, when you go about your humble way to do good by stealth, when you distribute 
your money to the poor, when you lift up your thankful eye to heaven, when you draw near to God with humble prayer, when you make confession of your sin to him, all these acts are like the smell of ointment to him, the smell of sweet savor, and he is gratified and pleased. When we gather in our Bible study groups, whether it's YAC or IF or Time Out or whatever is growth groups, and we start talking about the Lord Jesus and we talk about all he suffered for us and we speak about his glory and his amazing and abounding love and we begin to talk about all the good we've experienced by believing his promises and our hearts begin to burn with love for him. Do you realize that Jesus is in the room and he is saying to himself, it is good to be here. The lips of my brothers and sisters drop sweetness from the honeycomb. And when perhaps if we're alone, convicted by God's word, and all we can manage is a few broken words and some sighs and some tears, Jesus Christ is in the room and he's saying, your lips drop sweetness as a honeycomb. When we gather as a church and sing his praises, and we're not just singing because that's the next thing to do but we're actually directing our hearts and our praise and the worship of our hearts to him he delights in that it is so sweet to him we should think that more shouldn't we because i don't know about you for me it, it just stirs me up to think oh i don't praise him enough unleash the my lips, Lord, that they may praise you more, that I may speak of you more, that I may proclaim your excellencies more, knowing that there's one in heaven who listens and values every word we speak. Now, from revealing his heart and affection for her, he turns to a description of how he sees her, and he describes her like a garden. Look at verse 12. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You're a spring enclosed a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calmus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You're a garden fountain, a well of flowing water and streaming down from Lebanon. Now, if you walk around Edinburgh's uh, new town, you'll see a number of these gardens in the, the middle of you know, crescents, and there's, you know, there's barriers around them, and there's a gate, and you need a key to have access into this private garden space. And uh, in those ancient days in Israel, those hot countries of Israel and the Middle East, uh, gardens would all have been private spaces, no, no public gardens. And a, a well-kept garden with a good water supply was a place of great pleasure and rest and delight. And that's how he describes her. Now, what he describes here, apparently, is botanically impossible. You couldn't get all these different plants together in the same garden. She's described as a garden that contains all manner of exotic fruits and plants. They give wonderful fragrances and smells and spices. It's a sensory overload of pleasure and delight. That is what she is to him. And she's come to this wedding day as a virgin. You're a garden locked up, my bride. She's kept herself for her husband to be his delight alone. What an amazing gift to 
to be able to give. Now, our culture just mocks this view of sexuality. I've never seen the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin, but I know from the title it's a comedy. What a joke. Ha, 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 to wait until you're 40. What a joke. But it is a beautiful thing to wait for marriage. And to those who are waiting, the world will tell you that you're unfulfilled, that you're not allowing yourself to experience who you really are and that you're missing out. But Jesus does see your waiting. And even when it might be unfulfilled in this lifetime, it is a beautiful thing that honors him. But what if we haven't waited? Well, when the Apostle Paul shared the gospel in the sexually permissive city of Corinth, it attracted many different peoples with messy, sexually compromised lives. Just like today, people acted as if they could do whatever they wanted with their bodies, and it didn't matter. It wouldn't have any fundamental impact on, on who they were deep down. But you know what? That is still a lie, because sex is profoundly spiritual. What we do with our bodies impacts our souls and our destinies even. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians in, in chapter 6. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Isn't that wonderful? Church gathers in Corinth, and there's people in church, and some of them have done all these different things. That's been their background. That's been their messy past. But listen to what he says to them, that what happens when the, when the gospel comes, when Jesus comes. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. We all come to the Lord Jesus as broken sinners, and that includes being sexual failures. All of us. We've all failed in some way, whether in our thoughts or our actions. And the beautiful thing that the Lord Jesus does as we repent and put our trust in him is that he washes us clean of our sexual guilt and shame. He spiritually restores our virginity. And we are freshly set apart for him. And he declares us fully right with him. His Holy Spirit enters into the garden of our souls and he breathes new life, new holiness, new grace to help us weed out the, the sins of the old life, to remove what pollutes our souls and to bring fresh living water, a spring that keeps flowing in our lives that will enable new fruits of righteousness to grow. That's exactly what he promised that woman at the well in Samaria, wasn't it? Wow, five husbands, and now she was cohabiting. This was a messy, broken, 
lady with all this complex background and so much heartache for her. And Jesus purposefully comes to meet with her in the middle of the day because he wants to offer her living water. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them springs of water welling up to eternal life. He can take occupancy in the garden of people's souls that stink and turn them into places of freshness and fragrance and delight. That's what King Jesus can do. If people will open their lives and their souls to him, have you done that? Don't worry about the past. Open up your soul to him. He can transform it. Now, in this song, the the man invites his bride to intimacy. Come with me. But notice, he waits for her response. They are married. But he does not presume. He does not force or impose. He invites And he waits for a response. But he doesn't have to wait very long. In 4 verse 16, we hear her glad acceptance, her welcome and consent. Look at it. Verse 16, awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice do you notice this lovemaking is mutually desired? We've heard her caution her bridesmaids over a number of occasions. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And he has expressed his desire for her, but she wants him to know how much she desires him. Now is the time to awaken love. She wants to arouse and attract him. If she's a garden, then may the winds awaken and blow from the north and the south so that all her fragrances would draw him to her. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. If she's captured his heart so that he belongs to her, then she wants him to know that she belongs to him. Her garden is his garden, and she invites him to enjoy her. Now, at this point, the screen fades to black. We've overheard the most intimate things. You don't normally get to hear these things. But now the curtain falls and hides the couple from view. And after some time later, the next words that we hear is the contented lover speaking to his bride after their love is consummated. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And then surprisingly, we hear a chorus of voices. Friends sing out, eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. This is like the most private and intimate relationship. But what we're being told is it has 
public significance. The community of family and friends approve and delight in their joyful union. This is a good thing. As God has said, it is a very good thing. As the writer uh, to the Hebrews says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. You see, sexual faithfulness, a passionate, loving marriage provides a safe and strong foundation to raise up well-adjusted, thriving children who relate in positive ways to their community and so help us build a stable and a flourishing society. And when all those bits break down, chaos ensues. And so my married friends, listen to the word of God, eat and drink, be intoxicated with your love. It's in the Bible. You've got to obey the Bible, haven't you? Don't believe the lies uh, of the media about Christianity and sex. The Bible has a very healthy and joyful view about the delight of marital sex. The culture says, oh, sex means nothing. Just go for personal pleasure. The Bible says, no, no. God created sex to be very special, and it is something that is a source of wonderful delight that is supposed to unite two people together for a lifetime. The consummation of their love is at the heart of this song of songs. There are 111 lines of poetry building up to this and 111 lines of poetry flowing out of it. This is a dead center of the book. This is what this book is about. So let's think a bit about that consummation. A few things. Practically, notice it's an idealized love song. It seems that their first night was totally satisfying, but I think it'd be fair to say that married couples often find that they have to uh, learn how to be good lovers, and it takes time. But the joy of the commitment of marriage is that it gives you all the security of a lifetime of mutual self-giving to work all this stuff out. Secondly, there's something very spiritual about this consummation. In their union, there are so many echoes of salvation. They were thrown out of the Garden of Eden as those fallen from God's grace by their rebellion, and they brought conflict between man and woman, and yet there is in marriage God's gracious blessing where something of the garden can be restored. That's how he speaks of it. Or, or just as Israel traveled from the wilderness, remember King Solomon came in his chariot from the wilderness at the start of the day. It ends in the promised land of milk and honey. There is something about God's blessing upon marriage where this can become a place of rest and satisfaction. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. As promised land talk, that is. And yet... And yet, it is still so temporary and fleeting. And even marriages can be short. And marriages can face many challenges in this sinful, broken world that mean people can be left very unsatisfied. But all of this is in the Bible to say, look, this is pointing us to something greater and bigger and more satisfying and eternal. 
The consummation of salvation for Christ's church is yet to come. And that's what we're moving towards. We are looking forward to the day that the King returns. We are waiting for the wedding of the Lamb, when Christ's church will be prepared and perfected as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There is a day when God's dwelling place will be with his people forever and there's going to be no more tears and no more death for the old order of things has passed away. On that day, God will make everything new. And Jesus tells us in the Gospels on that day, there will be no need for marriages. There will be no need for sex. Because actually what we will have in the new heavens and new earth will be stronger better, more intense relationships of delight together than even the best marriage achieves. And you see, on that day, no one is going to sort of say, well, the new heavens and the new earth, they're nice, but I wish I had more sex back in the old place. No one is going to say that. On that day, any aching space in the lives of those in this life who were widowed, never married, or whose marriage has been a disappointment, any void will be instantly filled up with the greater joy of seeing Christ in all his glory and knowing him face to face. But what I want to say to you as I close today is that the joys of this day are not simply just all ahead. Because eternal life in one sense, starts the very day that we welcome Jesus into our lives and come to know God. And my question to you this day is, is one that I'm becoming more aware of as I, as I have been preaching through this book. Are we receptive to the Lord Jesus in our souls by welcoming his Holy Spirit in our lives? You know, you can be around people, even in your own house, without ever properly looking them in the face or acknowledging them or rightly relating to them in love. It's all too easy. We can get distracted. We can get busy. We can get disinterested. And it's very sad if, if that's your marriage partner you're getting disinterested in. But it's even more tragic that's your relationship with Jesus. And Jesus actually spoke to a church like that, a half-hearted, distracted church in Laodicea, and listen to what he said. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The lover of our souls wants fellowship with us to be in our church, to be in our lives. Will we listen for his voice? Will we be attuned to his presence? Will we be welcoming of him into the garden of our soul? Will we say, Holy Spirit, awake my sleepy, closed up, distracted soul.
Blow on my garden. May my life be attractive to the one who has loved me and redeemed me. Come into your garden, Lord Jesus. I am yours and you are mine.